thank you for another chance to dive into your word. God, we pray that you would challenge us, that you would change us, where we know your word is living and powerful. It's not just words. Um, It's divinely inspired by you. God, so I pray that you would use it to speak to us um, as a congregation, as individuals, Lord, that uh, whatever it is you want us to hear, that we would hear it, and not just hear it, but do something with it. So bless this time. We pray that your spirit would teach us in your name. Amen. All right. If you remember, uh, last couple of weeks, we talked about how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. This would be his last week on earth. And after he enters in and they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. We see he comes in to the temple and he cleanses the temple. Why? Well, they made a business out of the temple and they were uh, extorting the people and taking advantage of the people and preventing the people from worship. But we discussed last week how Jesus wasn't just giving us a picture in history and what happened and what he did with the temple. The Bible tells us that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus was giving us a physical illustration to teach us a spiritual lesson, how he wants to cleanse our temple. Why? Well, the same reason he cleansed that temple, so that we could become the house of prayer, so that we can be connected to God, so that we wouldn't have sin or filthiness in our lives that was preventing us from that connection. We discussed how sin separates. Now we're going to see Jesus, after he cleanses the temple, he's going to do something else. Very specific, very physical, very practical, but has many spiritual implications. If you would with me, let's read the text. We're not going to, we got six verses today. Matthew chapter 21, verse 17. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it, but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now we see Jesus is giving us another physical action to teach us. I just spit physical action to teach us a spiritual lesson. It happens sometimes, you know, (laughs) at least my mouth is, is, is moisturized right now. It's not too dry. You can hear me. That was kind of a big one. Um, (laughs) I didn't get it on myself, I don't think. It's on the ground. Um, So we see Jesus, what he's doing here. He's he's given us a a very physical, very practical uh, lesson, which is really more of a spiritual lesson. And he does this so often. He's so creative in his teaching style. And this fig tree, it has so much symbolism. There's so many connections. And we'll discuss how the fig tree is really a representation of Israel. But this message isn't just for Israel. This message is for all of us. See, Jesus, he's going to curse this fig tree because this fig tree is fruitless. And then after he curses the fig tree because it's fruitless, he gets to the root of the problem and why it's fruitless. Not the fig tree, the people of Israel. They're fruitless because they lack faith. Because they have no faith, they produce no fruit. So one of the main things the Lord is trying to get across, not just to them, but to us, is this. Faithfulness leads to fruitfulness, which is the title of this teaching. Faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. Now, When you look at fruit in the scripture, and we're going to look at fruit thoroughly in the scripture, not every verse, but uh, quite a few verses so that we're without excuse and we can really understand what this is that the Lord is asking of us. When you look at fruit generally, it's basically this. It's when sincere character meets faithful actions. That's really the fruit that the Lord is discussing here. And we'll understand that again more thoroughly. 
But let's look in the text back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 17. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. Okay, so he's leaving what city? He's leaving Jerusalem. He's going to Bethany. It says, and he lodged there. So he's lodging in Bethany. Then verse 18, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. So Jesus, he leaves Jerusalem. He goes to Bethany. Okay, Bethany, what Bethany means is house of affliction, house of misery, or house of dates. Okay, so it really means all of those things. And this is very interesting when you consider that this is the last week of the Lord's life. He's lodging in a place that means house of affliction, house of misery. He knows in a matter of days he's going to face his affliction. Specifically, he's going to face the crucifixion. He will die on the cross in just a few days. But what does he do? Look at verse 18. It says, now in the morning as he returned to the city. So he's on his way back to Jerusalem. We'll discuss next week what he's on his way back to Jerusalem to do specifically. But generally, he's on his way back to Jerusalem to teach in the temple. He's literally on his way to do ministry in the temple. See, Jesus, he wasn't consumed with the affliction he was about to face. He wasn't consumed with his own misery. What do I mean? Think about this. Think about if you knew you had less than a week to live, what would you be considering? What would you be thinking? You'd be thinking about yourself, right? I'm thinking about what's on my bucket list and I want to knock all these things. I want to go skydiving. I want to go to Fiji and I want to go to all these different things and do all this stuff. I got to knock this out because I don't have much time. Jesus, that's not what he was thinking about. He wasn't concerned about what was on his bucket list. He was concerned about others. He was focused on others. See, there's such an important biblical principle here. Remember, Bethany, house of affliction, house of misery. When we're in that state of, of affliction, when we're walking through trials, when we're in that place of misery, the Bible gives us this amazing secret to pull yourself out of misery engage in ministry, focus on others. See, when we walk through trials, we're immediately focused on self, but that makes us even more miserable. And if you really think about it, most of us, when we're in those states of misery for prolonged periods of time, it's because we're being selfish. It's because we're constantly focusing on self. But we see Jesus in this example and in other scriptures, if you will, with me in Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two, give you some context. Now, this book is really you could call it the epistle of joy. See, the word joy or rejoicing is mentioned in the book of Philippians 19 times. And the word mind is mentioned in Philippians 16 times. Paul, while he's in prison, he writes this letter. While he's in his chains. And he's trying to get this message across to a church that's being persecuted. If you want to experience joy, a lot of it is in your perspective. And look at what he talks about here in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 2. Three says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. He's trying to help them experience joy in their circumstance. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Church of Philippi, don't focus on yourself. You're going to make that misery, that experience so much more difficult. If you want to experience joy, quit thinking about yourself. Start focusing on other people. See, this was the example that Jesus gave us. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Joy on the cross, that doesn't make sense to me. But Jesus, he was able to experience joy. Why? Because he wasn't focused on himself. He wasn't focused on the suffering, the affliction. He was focused on who? He was focused on us. He was focused on his children. He was focused on all those who were going to believe on him for everlasting life. See, the Lord, just as he showed us on the cross, he shows us here in Matthew chapter 21, though he knows he's going to die in a matter of days, he's not stuck in Bethany. 
He's not stuck in his affliction. He leaves there to do what? Again, engage in ministry. That's what he's on his way to do at the temple. But before he goes to the temple, he has a specific lesson that he wants to teach the disciples. And he wants to teach us as well. It says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, says he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. I thought he was God. Yes, he's God, but he's also fully man, right? Jesus, he got hungry. But the hunger that he's speaking of here, it wasn't physical hunger. He was using physical hunger to teach the disciples uh, about a spiritual hunger. See, Jesus, he was hungry for spiritual food. He was hungry specifically for fruit. Point number one, Jesus is hungry for fruit. That's what he's looking for on this fig tree. He's looking for fruit. Jesus is hungry for fruit, and he looks to the believer, he looks to his followers, he looks to his people to produce that fruit. Now, it says in Matt, uh, sorry John chapter 15, not only is Jesus looking for fruit, it says in John chapter 15, if you'll flip with me there, we'll look at a couple verses here. John chapter 15, verse 16, not only is he looking for it, He's chosen us specifically for this. John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the father in my name, it may be given to you. See, Jesus, he's not only looking for it, he's chosen us. He's appointed us that we would bear fruit. See, the Lord, he doesn't only desire us to bear fruit for ourselves. When we produce fruit, that fruit spreads. What do I mean? Well, when you look at fruit, there's seeds in fruit, right? There's seeds in fruit. And the Bible likens seeds to the word of God. When we're producing fruit in our lives, when that character is coming out, when that character attached to faithful actions is coming out of our lives, The word of God is also going to be coming out of our lives. And when the word of God is coming out of our lives, seeds are going to be planted. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Apollo watered, I planted, and God gave the increase. This is something that we're called to do. Yes, produce fruit, but also plant seeds because our seeds lead to other people's fruit. So the Lord, he chooses us to produce fruit, not just for us, but so that other people can produce fruit as well. The Lord, if you would, back in John 15, he's very serious about his people producing fruit. Look what he says. He uses another physical illustration to teach a spiritual lesson. As they're likely passing a vineyard, Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Still hold your place in there in John chapter 15. So we see Jesus is specifically speaking to his disciples about his relationship with them. And he gives this very creative illustration. We, he's the vine. We're the branches. The branches grow from the vine. If, if the branches are in the vine, then they're going to produce fruit. But it says every branch in me, verse two, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now it's important to look at the Greek. I'm going to give you a few Greek words. That Greek word takes away is the word aero, A-I-R-O. And more often than not, it's translated take up. Okay? Take up. Now, when you look at how a vine dresser operates in a vineyard, this is basically how it goes. When you have those earliest new branches, okay, coming from the vine, they often grow down in the dirt. Okay, they grow down in the dirt. What happens if they're growing in the dirt? They're not getting sunlight. 
they can't produce fruit. So what the vine dresser will do is he'll lift up that branch, he'll wash off the vine, he'll tie that branch to the branch highest or to the branch next to it so that it can be cleansed, so that it can get sunlight, so that it can what? Produce fruit. Now, when you look at the original Greek, that word arrow means to take up more than it does to take away. Then when you look at that second part of verse two, it says, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. This word prune in the Greek is kathiro. Okay, that's K-A-T-H-A-I-R-O. The first and most used uh, definition of kathiro is to cleanse of filth. Okay, more often than it is to prune. I believe personally the Lord means both of these, to cleanse and to prune. But think about it once again. If there's a branch that's in the Lord, that's stuck in the dirt, that's in the filth, what's that a representation of? Sin, right? Could be a new believer. Could be somebody that's fallen, right? He, he takes them up. He lifts them up gently. He washes them clean, just like he cleansed the temple. Then he ties them up to the next branch. It's a picture of accountability. So why? You can get sunlight. It can get the proper nutrients and things that it needs to produce fruit. See, the Lord, if we're not producing fruit, yes, he cleanses us. But we see it's also translated prunes. Prunes can be that cutting back, that cutting away pruning. In the Bible, when we look at what the Lord means, pruning, it, it can be painful. And we can't have the wrong idea about the pruning thing. See, sometimes we think if I'm doing everything right, life is going to be easy, right? If I'm doing all the right things, I'm coming to church, I'm seeking God, I'm doing what he's asking, life should be easy, right? No trials, no tribulations. No, he says those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He promises us trials. He promises us tribulations. Not that that's always what's going to happen, but sometimes that pruning is the sign that you're doing the right thing. It doesn't always mean you're doing the wrong thing. See, pruning, it can come in the form of discipline. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, says this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord or discipline of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If we're not receiving discipline from the Father, God, is that really my Father? He says, every son whom I receive, I'm going to discipline, I'm going to challenge. Why? So that they produce fruit. So that character comes out of their lives. We also see in the Bible, this pruning thing can be in the form of trials and tribulations. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4, it says this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's like, it's one of the hardest verses for me to grasp. Count it all joy when you're falling into various trials. Like, oh my gosh, only by the grace of God. Because the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, the Lord will use trials in our life to produce patience. Patience is a character quality. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And it says he, he's doing that so that we can be perfected. That word per, perfect in the Greek, that means mature. He's calling us to be mature children of God. And he'll use trials, he'll use tribulations as a form of pruning us so that we can what? Mature. So that we can produce fruit. See, the Lord is determined to have his people produce fruit in fact he says this in john chapter 15 in john chapter 15 verse 3 you are already clean because of the word which i've spoken to you abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him bears much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. Jesus, he's making it very clear. If we abide in him, if we're pursuing him, we're in relationship with him, we're listening to him. And not only that, we're doing what he's asking us to do, then fruit is going to be inevitable. You can't abide in the vine and not have fruit come out. 
That's what he's saying. If you're in right relationship, the, the fruit's going to come out. It is inevitable. See, there's really two reasons why we won't produce fruit or, or why we're not producing fruit. Number one, we're not in relationship with God. Now that can apply, and Jesus makes this very clear. If you will with me, Matthew chapter 7, speaking of fruit once again, Jesus says this, I'll read it for you, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they, were, they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather, gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Jesus makes it very clear that if we're his, if we're abiding in him, we're going to produce fruit. He says, you'll know them by their fruits. It's a challenging text, but the Lord, his desire is, hey, it doesn't take much. Just abide in me. That's what he tells us in John chapter 50. If you abide in me, the fruit once again will be inevitable. It's bound to grow. All he's asking is that we abide. Back to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered. So again, this fig tree, it specifically represents Israel, specifically more specifically, the government of Israel, but it represents the nation as a whole as well. Now, it's important to note that with fig trees, the fruit is usually produced before the leaves. Okay, so this tree, because it has leaves, it should have fruit. Now, in Mark's gospel, he tells us that it wasn't the season for figs, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But even though it wasn't the season for figs, there should have been during this time period, this is right around Passover, these little edible first fruit figs that should have grown on the tree before the leaves came. See, Jesus looks at this tree, it has leaves, meaning it should have fruit. But it doesn't have fruit. It's like tricking them, right? It's like tricking people. Yeah, I might appear like I have fruit, but when you get up close and personal, there's no fruit to be had. See, this is a picture of the hypocrisy of Israel. They looked like something that they weren't. The chosen people of God, yeah, that. But their relationship with God was lacking and that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. See, Jesus, he saw their hypocrisy. He saw right through them. Point number two, Jesus can discern hypocrisy. Jesus can discern hypocrisy. Now we can look at that and be like, oh, Israel, yeah, this was a message specifically for them. But this is a message for us as well. The Lord, he knows if we're being hypocritical or not. He can see the hypocrisy when it comes up in our lives. Just as this fig tree, it looked good from far, but up close and personal, it was far from good. Same thing goes with hypocrites. They look good from far. But they're far from good. See, the Lord, this fig tree, wasn't fooling him. Neither can we. Our false fruit doesn't fool the Lord. We can look the part, we can act the part, but the Lord, he's looking at what? Man looks at the outward appearance, the external, but God, Jesus, he looks at the heart. And he'll even look at the heart, the motivations behind the things that we do. It's interesting Jesus, another title he's given in John, is the Word of God. And we see something special about the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4. You can hold your place. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 5 in a moment. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God, it literally discerns our hearts. 
the thoughts and intents of our what's your motivation behind the things that you do see the word of god jesus He's not just looking at the external. He's not just looking at the leaves. He's looking at the heart. He's looking at the motives. In fact, at the end of time, we see in 1 Corinthians, you can hold your place in Hebrews if you're there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Meaning, we can have godly appearing actions... But if we're doing it with the wrong heart, with the wrong motivation, that's the work we're not getting rewarded for. We know that every believer is rewarded with heaven, but the Bible here and other places speaks clearly that there's different rewards we can gain in heaven, often communicated in the form of crowns. But it's not just about what we do, it's how we do it and the reason why we're doing it to begin with. Now you might say, wait, uh... I try to do good works. I try to serve. I try to do this. I try to do that. I don't even know if my motives are are pure or impure. I don't know if I have ulterior motives. Well, the Lord, thank God, He gives us the gift in the Word of God. It says this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. But solid food belongs to those. He's speaking about the deep things of the word of God. But solid food belongs to those who are a full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Here's the point. When we're in the word, when we're using the word, we have a better gauge on a greater ability to discern good and evil. Not just in the world, but in ourselves. We can look to the word and say, hey, uh, wow, that exposed this thing in me. I didn't even know that pride was there. I didn't even know that hypocrisy was there. And now that I'm in the word, now I'm feeling convicted. Wait, I was doing that thing with impure motives. I wanted people to think this thing about me, but, but it wasn't sincere. I wasn't doing it with the right heart. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus. So as you read this, and if you've ever read this chapter and felt any sense of conviction, then you know what I'm talking about with Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14. As we're using the word, as we're in it, the Lord, he helps us discern even our motivations, whether they're pure, impure, good or evil. He says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may glory, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Jesus specifically, he's speaking about charitable deeds. He's saying, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? Because our hearts are wicked and deceitful. And sometimes we can have ulterior motives in why we do good things. But the word of God, as we read, wait, we get the question. He, he, he talks about charitable deeds. Then he talks about prayer. And then he talks about fasting and all of it is getting to the heart of why we're doing these things and what our motivations are, what our motives are, whether they're pure or impure. Is it to be seen by men? Is it because I want someone to think that I'm something that I'm not? See, as we use the word, as we're in the word, 
he helps us understand those things. Wait, wait, that thing that I did, man, that was hypocritical. I didn't have the right motives. I was doing this for ulterior motives. I was doing this because I wanted to gain favor from man, but I wasn't really doing it for the Lord. I wasn't really doing this for Jesus. See, Jesus, he can discern that just as he did did with the fig tree. He gets up close and personal. This fig tree, it should have had fruit. It appeared like it, right? All leaves, but no fruit. The Lord knows when we're all leaves and no fruit, and he's not okay with it. We'll see. That's why he curses the fig tree later. But before we get there, back to Matthew chapter 21. Sorry, Mark's gospel. Let's look at what Mark says really quick. In Mark chapter 11, same story. Same story. Verse 13, it says, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Okay? When he, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now remember, as I discussed, though it wasn't the season for figs, culturally, historically, there should have been first fruit figs. There should have been something on this tree. See, Jesus, he wasn't looking for like all these figs and this ginormous amount of fruit. He was just looking for a little something, just looking for a little bit of fruit. And that's what the Lord is looking for in each of our lives. We don't have to get overwhelmed with like, man, I got to produce so much fruit. No, no, he's just looking for a little bit so that we'll know that he is so that the world will know that we're his. Point number three. Jesus is just looking for a little fruit. Jesus is just looking for a little fruit. It wasn't the season for figs. He didn't have huge expectations. He just wanted a little something. That little first fruit. See, the Lord, though He desires and even demands that we bear fruit, There's so many different opportunities. There's so many different options to to bear fruit, to produce fruit. And we're going to talk about some of those options. See, fruit, it's very practical. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's actually a fruit of repentance. When we repent from sin, that's fruit. That's evidence that we're abiding in Jesus Christ. But there's a difference between sincere repentance and insincere repentance. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, now a lot of this stuff, I'm just going to tell you what it says. Uh, You can follow me there to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, but we're going to jump around a little bit because I want us to understand what this little fruit is that the Lord is looking for and how there are so many different options. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul communicates to us the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. In other words, sincere repentance Repentance versus insincere repentance. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What is he talking about? See, the difference between godly sorrow, sorrow and worldly sorrow is this. Worldly sorrow would be, I'm sorry I'm facing the consequences for my sin. I'm sorry I had this thing happen. I got punished for my sin and I'm sorry that happened. Because what's that going to produce in you ultimately? As soon as the consequences are gone, you're going to go back to the same sin. You're going to fall back into that same thing. Godly sorrow is, Lord, I'm so sorry that I did this thing to you. As David said in Psalm 51, I've sinned against God. Like I said, even more than I've sinned against man, I've sinned against God and I don't want to bring anything into my life that's going to separate me from sincere relationship with the Lord. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. But if you look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, we get uh, some clear indication of what this godly sorrow will look like. See, it says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, 
And then, he, and then he starts listing character qualities that were connected to this repentance. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. And all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There's character qualities that were produced in the sincere people that were actually repenting. I think a very sad but true example is with Esau. In Hebrews, it says that, that he sought to repent with tears, but he could find no place for repentance. Why? It's not that God didn't want to forgive him. Esau wasn't sorry that he sinned against God. He was sorry that he lost his birthright. He was sorry because he faced the consequences of his sin. He wasn't sorry that he sinned against the Lord and he found no place for repentance. See, there's a fruit of repentance. But if you ever get in a place where it's like, question, did I really repent of this thing? Was it godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Am I just, am I just sad that I'm suffering the consequences of my actions? Or am I sorry that I brought this in and made this a priority over my relationship with God? You can look there at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what my repentance should look like. We would compare our lives to that. And there's clear, oh no, this was produced in me. This vindication, this clearing of yourself, this, this zeal, all these things, diligence, fruit of repentance. There's the fruit of praise. You can write this down. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. There's the fruit of praise, the sacrifice of our lips, both giving thanks to God and worshiping God. See, when we're worshiping God, when we're giving thanks to God with the sincerity of heart, that's fruit. That's producing fruit. Like this morning during worship, if you were singing and your heart was in it, that's fruit. You were producing fruit. See, there's the fruit of praise. There's the fruit of giving. There's the fruit of giving. We see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. That's, that's a fruit, but we have to also understand it's the character qualities that's connected to the giving. I'm not giving because I want something back. I'm giving because I want to. I'm giving because I have a desire to. The Lord has given me so much. I want to give back. There's a fruit of giving. So if you're giving and your heart's in the right place, that's, that's fruit. You're producing fruit. In James chapter 3, verse 18, you can write it down. Just a few more. We see the fruit of righteousness. See, God, He imparts righteousness to us, but He also gives us the Holy Spirit to live a righteous lifestyle. So when we're walking in righteousness, in other words, doing what's right, that's, that's fruit, that's evidence of, of fruit in our lives. There's also... In Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, there's the fruit of understanding the word of God. There's, the fr- there's fruit that comes from understanding the word of God as well. In Psalm chapter 1, you're not going to be able to keep up. <laughs> I'm not even flipping there. Don't, I'm just trying to give you some of these examples. In, in Psalm chapter 1, I love this. In Psalm chapter 1, you can flip with me there if you want. I'll I'll actually flip there. In verses 1 to 3, we see there's fruit from delighting in and walking in the Word. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, the word of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Literally, those lovers of the word of God, those that like, man, I just like, man, God like spooked me. Like there's this powerful passage. Like, have you ever heard this? And they like want to talk about it and they want to share like what God's speaking and, and what his word says and all. That's fruit. He says there's fruit that's produced. When, when you delight in the word of God, when you meditate on it, when you desire to walk in it, that's evidence of fruit in your life. See, there's so many different ways that we can produce fruit. And I didn't talk about all of them. But there's one thing to know that's very important. It's not just, again, about what we do, but how we do it. See, fruit... It's always got to be grounded in love. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, it says, For the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he says, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. Right? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then all those other words describe what love is. So all of these things that we mentioned, whether it's praise, whether it's giving, whether it's righteousness, if it's not rooted in love, Paul says, it's for nothing. It profits you nothing. So all these things, it's not just about the action. It's about the heart behind the action. Again, it's when those character qualities meet those faithful actions, that's when fruit is produced in our lives. Back to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Verse 19. So he sees the fig tree. He finds no fruit on it, only leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. So Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus, let's be clear, he's not cursing the fig tree because it has no fruit. He's cursing the fig tree because it appears to have fruit and doesn't have fruit. He's cursing the fig tree because of its hypocrisy. Now it's crazy to think, how can a fig tree be a hypocrite? But remember, Jesus is trying to teach us a spiritual lesson here. God, he's not pleased when his people are all showing no fruit, when they're all leaves and no fruit, when nothing's truly being produced in their lives. And the message from Jesus to us here is Jesus judges that. He judges hypocrisy. Point number four, Jesus judges hypocrisy. If the fig tree had no leaves, we probably wouldn't be reading this text. That's the point. It had leaves. It appeared to have fruit, but it didn't have fruit. And that's why Jesus judges it. Now, remember, specifically, the fig tree represents what? Represents the nation of Israel. This was specifically a message to the disciples to help them understand the judgment that was going to come to the nation of Israel. But we also see in Luke chapter 13, Jesus gives us another parable describing this. See, when we look at Jesus judging Israel, it's like, wait, wait, aren't they your chosen people? Yeah, 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 they were. But the reality of it is, is that Jesus, regardless of who his people, is, who his people are, he desires again, he demands that his people produce fruit in Jesus. He gave Israel so many chances. He gave them so much opportunity. If you look, that's what this parable is about. In Luke chapter 13, verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years, how long was the Lord's ministry? Three years. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Basically, this parable, and there's a lot to it, it's describing this dialogue, if you will, between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father is like, man, I've given these people so many chances to produce fruit and they keep falling back into idolatry and doing all these different things. Jesus, the son's like, let's just give them a little bit more time. If we just give them a little bit more time, maybe they'll produce fruit as we see. There still was no fruit. At the end of the Lord's ministry, he comes, he curses this fig tree representing Israel, not just because it didn't have fruit, but because it appeared to have fruit and it didn't. The Lord, he judges hypocrisy. See, he refuses to allow his people to bear his name inaccurately or misrepresent him. He's not okay with that. And that's why he tells us, hey, 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 I would, I would rather not judge you. I would rather you judge yourselves. In Second Peter chapter 4, it says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, you can write it down, chapter 11, verse 31, it says, judge yourself so so that you're not judged. 
Meaning the Lord's like, hey, evaluate yourself. Look at where you're at. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith, if you're truly producing fruit. Give yourself that standard. Because that's really what God's called us all to. He's given us a standard. He's chosen his people to live up to a standard, not to appear to, but actually live up to it. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you can write it down. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he likens his people to a city that's set on a hill. What does that mean? A city set on a hill? Like everybody can see that city. He, he's elevated the standard for the follower of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Your standard is elevated. Not only is it elevated, it's for everyone to see. When we choose to be a follower of Christ, I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but we're choosing to live in a fishbowl. We're choosing to, I bear the name Christian, that means little Christ. I bear the name of Christ, that means I'm supposed to act like him. I'm supposed to talk like him. I'm supposed to walk like him. Now we know none of us are perfect. We're all sinners and Jesus died for our sins. But he calls us to strive for perfection, to try to live out that standard in our lives. He's elevated the standard and he calls us to live up to the standard. When we're not, especially when we're pretending to when we're not, that's when he gets frustrated. That's when he, he judges his people and that's why he curses this fig tree once again. It appeared to have fruit and it didn't. Almost done. Matthew chapter 21, verse 20. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Now this is funny. Jesus, he spoke a word and the fig tree withered. He didn't touch it. He didn't put poison on it. He just spoke a word and the fig tree withered. The disciples, they marvel at this. They're marveling still at the word of Like this surprised them. Like literally Jesus was speaking people back to life. Like he just rose Lazarus from the dead not that long ago. And this is so, they're still marveling. They're still like, oh my gosh, wow. You can curse a fig tree and it actually happens. Don't you remember Lazarus? He's raising people from the dead with his word. They're still not understanding the power of his words. How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Look at verse 21. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Jesus says the reason while he, why he was able to curse this fig tree is because he spoke words with faith, believing that they would happen. But that's not the only thing that he's trying to teach us here. See, in Mark chapter 11, verse 20, it says that the fig tree was withered all the way to the roots. Jesus, he's getting to the root of the problem. Remember, primarily for the nation of Israel, he's saying the reason Israel bears no fruit is because they have no faith. They don't have faith, so they're not producing fruit. So Jesus warns his disciples, he says, I want you to have the faith that Israel didn't. Because if you have the faith that they didn't, then you're going to produce the fruit that they didn't. Last point, point number five. Jesus is looking for spiritual roots of faith. Jesus is looking for spiritual roots of faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, without faith, we can't please God. Not only can we not please God without faith, we can't produce fruit. See, faith is the initiator of fruit. And where does faith come from? Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. But fruit, it comes from understanding it. Last place will be Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. I mentioned this previously. He says, Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. 
But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bear fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. See, faith comes by hearing the word, but fruit comes from understanding. Why? We can't apply what we don't understand. If we hear the word and we don't understand it, we can't take that, 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 that understanding into application, then fruit's not going to come. That's why we've done this thorough study on fruit. I think you say you have a decent grasp of fruit in the Bible. Not that you didn't before this, but we all have a decent grasp of the expectations that the Lord has for us. He says, I don't want you to just hear this. I, I want you to understand it. When my people are all leaves and no fruit, I'm not okay with that. See, Jesus, he's chosen us again. He's appointed us to bear fruit. If we're truly his, we're going to produce fruit. Now, he's not asking for like a whole fruit salad or fruit cocktail or like this abundant apple tree. He's just looking for a little bit, just a little bit of fruit. And there's so many ways that we can produce fruit for the Lord. But we can rest assured that if we're appearing to produce fruit and we're not, we're asking the Lord to to judge us. I'm not saying condemn us, but we're asking Him to, to get involved, to get in the way, to do something in our lives that brings us to that next place that we truly are producing fruit. See, occasionally, just as Jesus did with the fig tree, well, come by our fig tree and look at what fruit's there. Are we all leaves or is there fruit? If Jesus came by your fig tree today, I'm talking about your person, what would he find? Just leaves and no fruit? Or would there be fruit? What do you see? Yes, it's exactly what I'm talking about. The Lord, he's hungry for fruit. He's searching for fruit and he's chosen us to produce that fruit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would you would give us the faithfulness to produce fruit. Lord, that we wouldn't just hear it or even just understand it, but we would we would walk in what you ask us to walk in. Lord, we owe you at least that. God, I pray that you would produce fruit in our lives, that your spirit would be at work in our lives that we would just have the, the desire to, to, to live fruitful lives, knowing that it's not just a, about us producing fruit, but we know that you'll use our fruitfulness to affect other people. God, so, so help us um, be those people that you've chosen us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.